Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery is prompting yet another debate regarding whether or not Georgia needs a state hate crime law. But now there could be bipartisan support. It's a conversation with Republican Representative Chuck Efstration. It's time to act. The state Senate, I think, has a real opportunity here to send a strong message that Georgia is no longer going to be one of the four states without a hate crimes act, that we're going to empower law enforcement and society to call particularly heinous crimes what they are. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus right here in Georgia. As of today, there are 33,833 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,405, and there are 6,001 hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health as of 9.30 a.m. today. And related to the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery, Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr says he'll ask the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate the handling of the case. In a statement released Sunday, Attorney General Carr said the public deserves a, quote, complete and transparent review of how the case was handled. This after a video of Arbery's shooting death became public and the Georgia Bureau of Investigation took over the case. Attorney General Carr is asking the DOJ to look into communications between two prosecutors who recused themselves from the case. A.G. Carr says his office will turn over files regarding its process for appointing the prosecutors in the case. This is Closer Look. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. We're fundraising today, but this spring we're doing it differently. We're keeping these breaks very short to bring you back to critical programming as soon as possible. So please help us if you can, wabe.org slash donate. And joining me is WAB's own J.M. Barry, our marketing director. Hi, that's wabe.org slash donate, where you can go to give or call 678-553-9090. Your donation right now will help everyone continue to benefit from the trusted news and important contacts that WABE delivers every day. And today we're also fundraising with our community partner, Giving Kitchen. So your one donation will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker in crisis. Please give right now at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks to you, to Giving Kitchen, and to Cisco Atlanta for their help.
That's wabe.org slash donate or 678-553-9090. Thinking back over the last six weeks, we've produced so many local stories about the pandemic. We've carried live press conferences and even launched a new podcast, all to keep you informed and safe with critical, accurate news. Your donation right now will help us continue. It's easy. Just go to wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. Every day on Closer Look, Rose brings vital news and interviews about the pandemic. We need your donation. Many of our listeners typically give $15 a month, but please give what you feel you can afford at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. Okay, Closer Look is just about 30 seconds away. Thank you so much to everyone who's helped us today and so far during the drive. We've had some great response from the community, but we need you as well. Please give at 678-553-9090. Or at wabe.org slash donate. It only takes a couple of minutes to give. If you're still on the fence about giving, please consider a one-time gift of 50 or 25 or 365 You know what you can afford. But the key, right now, we need you. Please play a part. WABE.org slash donate or 678-553-9090. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. There are four states in the nation without a state hate crime law. They are Arkansas, Georgia, South Carolina, and Wyoming. There have been attempts before for a state hate crime bill to be passed right here in Georgia. Opponents often cited there's no need because the federal hate statute is enough. Now, a video has emerged revealing the shooting death of a black man, 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery, by two white men, Greg and Travis McMichael. And that has led to a renewed debate regarding whether or not Georgia needs its own state hate crime law. But this time, there may be bipartisan support. Joining me now is longtime Republican Representative Chuck Efstration, who also chairs the Judiciary Non-Civil Committee in the state legislature. And Representative Efstration, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Morning, Rose. Thank you for having me. Let me get your thoughts. I'd like to get your reaction when you first view the the cell phone video of the the altercation, which obviously it does reveal the, the death of Ahmaud Arbery. I was deeply concerned when I saw the video. I think the reaction, which was an outcry for the Georgia Hate Crimes Act, uh, really came at a time when uh, the legislation is pending at the Georgia Capitol and there's an opportunity for action due to the suspension of the General Assembly session. So in 2019, the Georgia Hate Crimes Act passed the Georgia House Mm -hmm. and it's been sitting in the Senate Judiciary Committee since March of 2019, hasn't received a hearing yet hasn't received a vote. And the interest from the public as to why does Georgia not have a hate crime statute on the books? Why is this gap in the law continuing to be in place? Really, I think, has brought renewed focus to the need to pass Georgia's Hate Crimes Act. And Representative, you have supported a number of measures with the focus on criminal acts that violate others. I remember last year, you were a sponsor and a supporter of an anti-human trafficking protective measure that had bipartisan support. What will be different, you think, this time with possibly passing a state hate crime law here in Georgia? 
I've worked extensively in the area of criminal law reforms, and that's because of my past experience as an attorney mm-hmm. and an assistant district attorney prosecuting uh, felony cases. And what I've seen is we need to update Georgia's criminal codes to reflect what we're seeing uh, out there in, in practice. And a big part of that is uh, criminal justice reform. And I served on the Georgia Council on Criminal Justice Reform and carried anti-human trafficking legislation, as you mentioned. But also, it's updating Georgia's law to address a Georgia Supreme Court opinion, which made Georgia's Hate Crimes Act invalid. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been in place for almost 16 years now. And the need to update Georgia's hate crimes law to provide the specificity that the Georgia Supreme Court called for, I think is really important. That's what this legislation does. Like many other criminal statutes, judges are allowed to give enhanced sentences based upon the victim that was targeted in a case. So examples might be domestic violence, Mm -hmm. exploitation charges, things like that. We already have that in the law. The hate crime statute didn't specify uh, the detail that's necessary in order for prosecutors to apply the law. And that's why the Supreme Court overturned the law in 2004. So we have an opportunity now to update that statute, to fix it, and there's broad bipartisan support to pass this measure. That's what's really exciting about this. I'm a Republican, chair the committee that handles criminal law updates, but um, there's great uh, co-sponsors that are working together with me on the bill, Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why we have a unique opportunity to get this passed this year. The General Assembly will reconvene in the coming weeks. And uh, when that happens, the state Senate can take up House Bill 426, the Georgia Hate Crimes Act, and pass it so that we can finally fix this area of the law and Georgia will no longer be on that list of four states that don't have a hate crimes act. Representative, as it relates to that update, is that something that you are going to make sure you are going to help draft that language for the update? Yeah, it's already, it's already been passed by the Georgia house. The language has been drafted. And as mentioned, there were, there's great support where we addressed any concerns about Um, uh, whether it's inconsistent with criminal justice reform and whether it provides the specificity needed for important application. And so that language that um, that's now before the state Senate has been carefully drafted and has been uh, really reviewed without any, I'd say without any objection to the framework in which we're putting it forward. There's policy debate that's occurred But the language, I think there's been consensus of support. If you support hate crimes legislation, then you support House Bill 426. What's your response to in the past? And this is we've heard it before that, well, there's a federal hate crime statute and that should be enough. What's your response to that? The federal hate crime statute doesn't apply in many circumstances when a person viewing a case would say this is clearly a hate crimes act. Georgia police reports, uh, the uniform police report, includes a checkbox for hate crimes, yet there's no law that would allow law enforcement to actually charge a particularly heinous act for what it is. And so my response is that it's important that we update state statute to reflect the specific concerns that we have in the state. And 
criminal offenses that are committed where a person is targeted because of uh, his or her class, that is of particularly concern. And judges and prosecutors, law enforcement, and society needs to be able to call it what it is, which is mm-hmm. a hate crime. Another concern has been with some state hate crime laws that often there are protections left out for those who identify in the LGBTQI community. Would this also include protections for pretty much any demographic, any group, if it's based on, you know, an act that is perpetrated based on dislike of race or ethnicity or sexual orientation or what have you? Yes. And just specifically last year, there was a case in DeKalb County Mm -hmm. where a victim was killed and the perpetrator made the statement that he was being killed because he was gay. Mm -hmm. And so this uh, this bill, if passed, would apply in cases like that. What what I think we really have to do is appreciate that not all criminal offenses are are the same. I'll just use graffiti as an example. If somebody does graffiti of their own name versus somebody writes a hate message or a swastika or something like that in graffiti, those are really two different crimes. One is what we would call criminal trespass under Georgia law. The other is a direct attempt to intimidate part of society, to try to cause fear and harm others. And I think that that distinction is what the law should recognize. Criminal offenses can't be classified properly without a hate crimes act on the books. You're an attorney. You also understand that there are rights for those who are accused. And we've heard people argue, well, how can you, if you don't have enough evidence to suggest that this act was committed solely because someone didn't like someone's skin color or their sexual orientation or their religious views, that that is often very hard to prosecute. With a state hate crime law, you've got to be really careful that if you're going to start using this, that you can actually get a conviction. Well, that's a that's a great question. And what this act does is it allows for what lawyers call a bifurcated trial. Mm-hmm. So first, a prosecutor would have to prove the underlying criminal offense beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury before hate crime is ever mentioned to the jury. So first, a conviction must occur. Only then would a jury then take up the issue of whether or not it's a hate crime. And that's because notice would be given to the defendant in advance of trial mm-hmm. that that enhanced sentencing is being sought. And a jury would then, on the issue of whether it's a hate crime, have to determine beyond a reasonable doubt unanimously that the perpetrator committed a hate crime. So protections are in place to ensure that due process is maintained. This is not a new criminal offense. It's just allowing classification when appropriate after conviction for another violation of Georgia law. I want to switch gears for a moment. Representative Georgia Attorney General Chris Carr is asking the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate how police and prosecutors are are basically handling the shooting death or have handled the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. You support A.G. Carr's ask of the DOJ? I do, but I think that we have a great opportunity in Georgia to really look at criminal offenses and criminal procedure that may be Uh, requires update in Georgia law. So what I expect we'll be looking at in the future would be the citizen's arrest statute, Mm -hmm. 
other statutes that are particularly in play here so that we can really examine whether Georgia law needs to be updated in, in several of these important areas. So I do support the attorney general's uh, decision, but I think we have work to do in the coming months and years in Georgia as we look at our own state statutes. Well, and let me get your thoughts on this then. What about how police and prosecutors handled when this initially happened? The fact that several district attorneys recused themselves. There was an instance where it was believed that Travis McMichael, you know, under the Stand Your Ground statute, which may be another statute uh, the lawmakers will look at uh, in, in the future. And so it's prompting people with claims of a cover-up. Do you see that there needs to be some investigation into how authorities in Glen County handled this initially? I was deeply concerned when I viewed the video and I thought about what if the video hadn't been released. And so I do, I am deeply concerned about criminal investigations. And I think that the review that's taking place by the GBI and potentially federal authorities soon, I think is a good thing to do. I don't, um, I can't speak to the specifics of any one case, sure. but just watching the media reports, I'm deeply troubled by how how it took this long for uh, for action to be made. And I think that there's there's going to be an opportunity, as I mentioned, to really look at Georgia's criminal procedure and how cases are reviewed with respect to the the law that uh, we vote on at the state capitol. And so that. Uh, that review going forward, I think, will be uh, very important to consider, and I look forward to hearings on that in the future. Finally, Governor Kemp has been, just a few days ago, quoted as saying, conversations about legislation are already underway, and we will work through the process when the General Assembly reconvenes. Uh, that's got to be some good news for you. How optimistic are you that whenever you and the fellow lawmakers return that you can get finally get this measure passed and get it to Governor Kemp's desk for his signature. I'm very hopeful that the state Senate will take this up as soon as possible, pass the Georgia Hate Crimes Act as soon as we're back in session. And I appreciate the governor's comments by showing openness to the Georgia Hate Crimes Act. I think that that helps to encourage and support passage. And so although there's I'm sure a great deal of work going forward, just like there is on any legislation uh, when we're working to get it passed. I'm uh, very excited by our prospects to do the right thing, to get the Georgia Hate Crimes Act passed in 2020. There's been so much made that when you all do return, there will be a focus on obviously dealing with some particular outcomes, which we may not know what those are due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, the budget's going to be one. Do you have any concerns that this measure could get lost or, you know, have to go back to committee or what have you? Or do you have any concerns that it won't get taken up by the Senate or passed because you all are going to be focused on so many other things related to the pandemic? So the Georgia House passed this legislation in right. March of 2019. And I just say that to just mention that the ball is really in the Senate's court right now. It's pending in the Senate Judiciary Committee. As I mentioned, it didn't receive a hearing in 2019 or so far in 2020 in the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I, I think that the public interest and outcry for the need to have a hate crimes law in Georgia, 
I think will encourage members of the state Senate to take up this good bill and pass it. And I believe that uh, they have the ability to, to pass that very quickly and get it to the governor mm-hmm. in, in short order. So I, I really think that the need is clear and that we've uh, worked so carefully on the language. It's now time to act. This bill needs to be passed. I believe, is it Senator Stone? That's the chair? Of That's the- right. Yes. Have you had conversations with the senator about this? I have. Yes. I mean, I, I am very interested in uh, discussing with any member of the state Senate any questions that that member might have. I think that that when information is provided to fully explain the need, critical Mm -hmm. need, for a hate crimes act in Georgia, that really a a better understanding allows for straightforward support. I think that the legislative process many times can be uh, can be slow and very deliberative. And that's often a, go- a great thing. When you're considering changes to the law, there ought to be extensive debate and consideration. But at this point, this legislation, as I mentioned, has been pending in the Senate for a year. Mm-hmm. And there have been previous versions of a Georgia Hate Crimes Act, which have been considered over the past several years mm-hmm. and just haven't reached passage. So this isn't a new issue. The gap in Georgia law is well known because of the Supreme Court's opinion uh, vacating the existing Georgia law. And, and, uh, and so it's, it's time to act. The state Senate, I think, has a real opportunity here to send a strong message that Georgia is no longer going to be one of the four states without a hate crimes act. That We're going to empower law enforcement and society to call particularly heinous crimes what they are. And I, th- I think the opportunity for passage this year is, is great. Republican Representative Chuck Efstration, who also chairs the Judiciary Non-Civil Committee in the Georgia General Assembly. And we've been talking about the possibility of Georgia passing a state hate crime law. Representative Efstration, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. You're listening to Closer Look, and of course, I'm Rose Scott. Now, we're fundraising today, but this spring, we're doing it differently. We're keeping these breaks very short to bring you back to critical programming as soon as possible. But please help us if you can at wabe.org donate. And joining me is WABE's J.N. Berry, our marketing director. Hi, it's so good to be here with you, Rose. WABE.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Your donation helps us pay for what it takes to keep critical information coming your way. Today, we're also fundraising with our community partner, Giving Kitchen. So here's how it works. Your one donation right now will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker in crisis. Please give at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks to you to Giving Kitchen, and to Cisco Atlanta for their help. Okay, Closer Look is just about 30 seconds away, but thank you so much to everyone who's helped us today and so far during the drive. We've had some great responses from the community, but we need you too. So please give at 678-553-9090. We need your donation because so much of our funding, 84% of it, comes from the Atlanta community. Many of our listeners give about $15 a month. 
But these days are anything but typical. So please give what you can afford at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. It only takes a couple of minutes to give. And a monthly sustaining gift is the best way to support us. And you can also make a one-time gift of $50 or $100 or $365. You know what you can afford. We need your help. So please give at wabe.org slash donate or give us a call. We're at 678-553-9090. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Last month, President Donald Trump cited a desire to help Americans find work since the COVID-19 pandemic was at the core of the nation's spike in unemployment. By pausing immigration, we'll help put unemployed Americans first in line for jobs as America reopens. So important. It would be wrong and unjust for Americans laid off by the virus to be replaced with new immigrant labor flown in from abroad. Now, the president issued an executive order banning immigration for those seeking permanent residency visas or green card work status. The ban was issued on April 22nd and is for 60 days. As with nearly all of President Trump's immigration-related policies and executive orders, the move was met with criticism and concern. The Tahoe Justice Center is a national nonprofit that helps those fleeing from violence in their home countries to reestablish their lives here in the United States. Joining me now to discuss the president's green card ban is Shana Tayback, executive director for the Tehara Center's downtown Atlanta office. Shana, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Hi, Rose. It's so good to be with you. Before we get into the president's executive order, I gave a brief description of what you all do in your organization, but you all provide some specific services and resources, correct? That's right. So the Tahare Justice Center is a national nonprofit organization. We've been around nationally for nearly 25 years, but here in Atlanta for about two and a half years. And our work is to provide legal and social services to survivors of gender-based violence who have come to the United States to seek protection. So we are serving um, really heroic individuals who are fleeing everything from human trafficking, forced marriage, domestic violence. Um, They're fleeing on behalf of their sexual orientation, their gender identity, or really they're just, they're they're trying to live a life where um, they as human beings aren't targeted based on the fact that they're women or girls or um, have a different gender identity or sexual orientation. Are they referred to your organization, Shana? Um, You know, a lot of our sister organizations here in Georgia do refer folks to us who need legal services. Um, And really, it's been amazing. I think there was a a significant need for uh, our legal and social services when we came to Georgia. And so word of mouth, I think, has spread and and folks have turned to us 
um, for in order to seek the legal the legal status that they are entitled to under U.S. law, but without attorneys, they really couldn't access that protection. Let's talk about process here. Are they seeking asylum? Yeah. So um, some of our clients are seeking asylum. I'd say a good portion of them are doing that. And you know, uh, asylum seekers are essentially refugees who have fled to the United States and under international law and U.S. law, once they step foot in the United States, they're entitled to say, I need to ask for asylum. I'm looking for your protection. Mm -hmm. And and that's really asking for refugee status. But because they've come to the United States, they need to go through court processes in order to get that grant of asylum. So a lot of our clients are asylum seekers. Georgia is unfortunately well known as one of the hardest places to get asylum, um, where um, it's it's very, very difficult in our courts to get asylum. Um, so a lot of our clients are, are doing that. And our attorneys at our office both represent folks who are taking their first shot at getting asylum, but then also recognizing that um, such low percentages of people get asylum. Uh, we also have an appeals project. So we work Uh, to appeal cases where we feel that there's been real violations of due process, um, egregious judge bias against um, our clients who are victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we work to appeal those cases to look for justice for them. Um, Those are our asylum seekers. Uh, We also represent a great number of folks who are fleeing human trafficking. So people who have been subject to either sex trafficking or labor trafficking and uh, are are looking for the protections that our law entitles them to if they've been trafficked to the United States. So let me pause you right there just for clarity. Before seeking asylum, the process to mm. get to the United States is that's not an easy process either because you can you can apply for asylum once you're here in the United States, correct? But in order to even land in in this country, there's a whole nother process. Exactly, exactly. So as you said, Rose, um, you know, some folks elect to um, wait in other countries, the average wait could be, you know, between um, seven and nine years to get refugee status. But our clients are literally fleeing for their lives. There's been a moment with every single client we have where if I ask our client, what, what pushed you to leave? They say, well, you know, it was the day when my husband held a gun to my child's head and said, I'm going to kill your child if you don't, you know, comply with my demands mm-hmm. or, or what have you. There's a moment where it becomes clear to our clients that if they don't leave their home country, they will face, they will face death and they're terrified and they, they leave because they are being persecuted on account of who they are. And so... Um, our clients, they, they come to the United States through a variety of, of means. Um, some have visas with, you know, educational visas, some have tourist visas, but, and, and some come to our U.S. border, come to the bridge and simply say, I need protection. Um, that process of asking for protection is enshrined in U.S. law and was um, generally respected by our government up until uh, the past few years where um, the administration has made it significantly harder to ask for and seek protection under U.S. law. Well, Shana, let me ask you this. What are some of the typical reasons that would deny entry into the U.S.? For asylum seekers, 
you know, individuals are typically denied access to the United States if they, you know, but I, I, should, I should just clarify, once a person actually steps across the border, um, mm -hmm. you know, they are, they are eligible to ask for that protection, irrespective of, of, of anything that might have happened. But, but then the United States will typically put somebody into proceedings and deny them protection if they've, you know, committed um, egregious crimes, if they're a terrorist, if they're a threat to national security, mm -hmm. things like that um, will certainly uh, mean that a person is not eligible for entry into the United States. And for women and girls and those who might be coming from a nation that is known for cited for human rights violation, is that enough of a reason then that they can apply and then their application be expedited at all? Yeah, I mean, under under U.S. law, every person is entitled to an individualized assessment of of what we call credible fear. So, if I um, am a political activist in my country, and um, you know, I have beliefs that I, I want to see a more democratic future in my country, um, and that's tied up with my identity as a woman. I'm a feminist. I'm a political political activist, and then I'm targeted. I'm, you know, uh, people say to me we're going to kill you, we're going to rape you, you X, Y, and Z, you know, mm -hmm. awful person. Um, I am entitled to come to the U.S. and say, to make my argument, to say, look, people are threatening my life because of who I am, because of my beliefs that women and girls deserve equal rights. Mm -hmm. And that's really at the core of it, what the majority of our clients are, are saying. You know, whether it's a woman who's uh, an indigenous woman from Guatemala who's never had the access to education, to political systems, and has been has been raised with the belief that she is a second-class citizen because she's a woman, or whether it's a, a woman who's running for political office um, on a feminist platform, all of those individuals are simply seeking equality for women and girls. And that, at its core, is a basis for asking for protection in the United States. If, if those beliefs and those mm -hmm. opinions and that identity is leading to persecution. So, Shanna, based on what you just said, what you just told me, then the president's executive order, albeit mm. for 60 days, you have concerns that even during this period of time, the ban is a matter of life or death for many of the folks that you all are, are helping or could yeah, be. Well, it could be. It could be, certainly. And it's certainly... Um, what I see with the president's recent ban um, is, you know, it's it's part of a bigger vision that our current administration has has taken. I think, um, and what I see is that it's using this current public health pandemic to further hardline immigration policies uh, against individuals who are are trying to come to this country, whether it's or you know, trying to flee persecution, or whether it's individuals who want to be reunited with their family members who are U.S. citizens. It's affecting a really broad group, uh, potentially, of, of potential immigrants and potentially U.S. citizens as well who simply want to be reunited with their family members. The president stated the temporary green card ban was to ensure Americans couldn't find work because unemployment and obviously because of the COVID-19 pandemic. What's your take on the president's reasoning? Well, the president has indicated that this executive order is part of a bid to save U.S. jobs uh, amid the pandemic. Um, but 
you know, we, I think, are concerned that this executive order is really much very in line with all the other anti-immigrant isolationist policies that our, our current government has put forth uh, against immigrants coming from outside of the United States. So, um, you know, I think we are really concerned that uh, this executive order is going to dramatically affect individuals who are trying to be reunited with their family members. It's essentially going to put on hold any family-based immigration. So a person who is a U.S. citizen who has a family member outside the United States, um, it's going to be much, much harder for those individuals to come and be reunited with their family members here. And for a definition for our listeners who may not know, the green card status, how is that different from some of the other ones that we talked about, particularly the visas? So, yeah, a green card is um, essentially somebody who has legal permanent residence here in the United States. Once you get that, you are entitled to a green card. And the way it connects with Tahereh's clients is all of our clients, you know, once you get a a T visa for being a victim of trafficking, or once you get asylum, or once you get a U visa, which is something we try and secure for clients who have cooperated with police in pursuing violent crime. Um, All of our clients then after a certain amount of time are eligible uh, to get a green card. And that essentially means that you have a path to citizenship once you have a green card. That was my next question. How crucial is obtaining the green card status in the overall process of, of becoming a U.S. citizen. Yes, it's, it is. It's, it's essential. It's a necessary first step uh, before a person is eligible for citizenship in the United States. How concerning is it for you that this measure could lead to additional restrictions or bans? Well, you know, what we've seen over the past several years has been, um, you know, an attempt by our current administration, at least what, what we've observed, to um, build a wall, right? And that's been the rhetoric oftentimes, you know, let's build a wall at our southern border. Um, but short of being able to build a physical barrier uh, between the United States and other countries, what we've seen in this administration has been an onslaught of different policies, really attacking different potential immigrant groups. Um, and so building a, a, a wall through policy, essentially. Um, and But I think, you know, my concern is that we are um, not only affecting U.S. citizens who want to bring their family members to the United States, but we are also really falling short of our obligations to protect some of the most vulnerable individuals uh, in the world who are looking for protection under U.S. law, under the Refugee Convention, under pr- trafficking protections, which these are protections that our government has enacted with great um, bipartisan support to protect some of the most vulnerable people uh, who are coming here. And uh, I think my concern is that some of these current policies are really flaunting what the United States government has, has enshrined into law in terms of these protections. Um, I, I witnessed this firsthand uh, in November. I, the Tahereh Justice Center partnered with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and we uh, took a group of Atlanta leaders to the U.S. southern border. And um, what we saw there was the impact of some of these policies. Uh, and so, you know, this 
in what we've done, I think, through some of these, these policies regarding immigration is that we've forced refugees to remain in Mexico and have created refugee camps essentially on the Mexican side of the border with 60,000 refugees, some of them Tahrir Justice Center clients, waiting to come to the United States to ask for protection. And um, my fear is that with these continued policies that are, are really trying to keep people outside of the United States, we are creating very dangerous situations for some of the most vulnerable individuals. Um, these refugee camps are crowded, they're dangerous, they're unsanitary, and this is before the COVID pandemic. Um, so we've really created a very dangerous situation. I mean, these refugee camps are essentially powder kegs waiting to explode mm -hmm. if, if and when COVID hits them. And um, I think it's, a, it's very disconcerting that our government has directly led to the worsening uh -huh. of uh, the public health situation in that way. And Shana, as we wrap up, let's talk about this pandemic. And there are some unique circumstances for the folks that you all are helping. That is is very much the case. I mean, we're really living in extraordinary times. Um, Tahrir Justice Center, like everyone, we've been working remotely in order to protect the health and safety of our, our staff and our clients. But, um, you know, if we think about who our clients are, the first thing I want to say is that these individuals seeking protection are really heroic. They are standing up and saying, you know, I'm, I'm looking for protection from trafficking, from persecution, from domestic violence. However, most of our clients are coping with the after effects of trauma. Um, mm -hmm. Some of our clients are still coping with abuse here in the United States, and they are oftentimes very isolated due to the fear that they may have from turning to law enforcement if they are abused. Um, they may not have work authorization. They may not speak English. Mm -hmm. And so these are individuals who are already very isolated, already very distanced from our community here in Georgia oftentimes. But social distancing has made them all the more, I think, vulnerable. Um, for our clients who have abusers here in the United States, to socially distance, to isolate oneself at home with an abuser is, is quite quite terrifying. Um, and for those of our clients, you know, whose abusers know where they live, um, when they are isolated at home, uh, it means that they are all the more vulnerable to those individuals coming to find them. So um, we have seen a great increase uh, in the United States, a 25% increase in reports of domestic violence since the pandemic started. And we know that our clients are reporting the same um, so our team at Tahere, our legal team and our social services team has really been working around the clock to support these individuals. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing I should just mention is, you know, okay. some of our clients who are um, eligible to work in the United States, they are frontline healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. They are the folks who are really, you know, protecting us. They're we have one client um, who was a survivor of human trafficking who works in sanitation at a hospital serving COVID clients here. Um, we have another client who's working at a grocery store, making sure that we can all eat. We have another client who works in agriculture, still picking um, onions uh, to ensure that there's food for us. So, you know, our clients are also, you know, service workers, frontline workers, keeping our economy going, and yet they are also afraid, you know, that they don't have the protections they need, that they don't um, have the protective gear, the sanitation, et cetera. 
um, and yet they, they need to continue working in order to survive. So, mm-hmm. so Tahari is doing all we can to assist them. Mm-hmm. Shana Tayback, Executive Director for the Tahare Justice Center in downtown Atlanta. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. We are fundraising today, but this spring it will sound a little different because we're keeping these breaks very short. So please help us if you can by going to wabe.org slash donate. And I'm joined now by our own Director of Marketing, J.N. Barry. Call 678-553-9090 or go to wabe.org slash donate. Your help right now paves the way for us to keep giving you trusted information with no rant and no slant. Today, we're also fundraising with our community partner, Giving Kitchen. So here's how that works. Your one donation right now will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker who's in crisis. Please give at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks to you, to Giving Kitchen, and to Cisco Atlanta. The number is 678-553-9090 or online at wabe.org slash donate. So let's look back, oh, let's say the last few months. Closer Look has brought you a wide range of interviews about this pandemic, from government leaders to healthcare workers. We do this to give you the full picture. So help us keep you informed and safe with critical, accurate news at wabe.org slash donate. Or call 678-553-9090. You know how much you can give. And if you're able to make a contribution of 1200 or more, you'll become a Cornerstone member. Your generosity will allow us to deliver great programming and will continue to be a trusted source of information. Please give. And if you're able, at the Cornerstone level, at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090. It only takes a couple of minutes to give. And if you can't commit to a monthly sustaining gift, consider a one-time gift of 50 or 100 or 365. You know what you can afford. But the key right now, we need you. Please play a part. We're at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Wah, bam, bling, bam, bling, bam, bam, to the boot. Oh, boot. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 1955, some of you can answer this question. Can you recall the first time you heard Tutti Frutti? A young man from Macon, Georgia, with processed hair, dressed to the T, as they say, a great voice, great showmanship, and master of the piano became an overnight sensation. Born Richard Wayne Pinneman and given the nickname Little Richard by a band leader named Buster Brown. And yes, the rest is musical history. Little Richard, a natural root of rock and roll then and now, died on Saturday. He was 87 years old. His influence, immeasurable. Just read the outpouring of tributes from others. Spike Lee, Mavis Staples, Paul McCartney, Keith Richards, Elton John, Tevin Campbell, and Chance the Rapper, to name a few. He was Boogie Woogie, he was R&B, he was rock and roll, and all coming from a gospel beginning, which is often overlooked. 
an innovator, an originator, an icon, and the godfather of an American-made genre. We salute Macon's own Little Richard, and in his own words, let's rip it up. Well, it's Saturday night and I just got paid. Good my money, don't try to save. My heart said go, go. Have a time for Saturday night and I feel fine. Gonna rock it up. I'm gonna rip it up. I'm gonna shake it up. This is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and we're fundraising today, but please stay with us because we're keeping these breaks very short. That way, I can get you back to the show as quickly as possible. Please help pay for Closer Look, if you can, by going to wabe.org donate. And joining me is WABE's own J.N. Barry, our Director of Marketing. Hi, everyone. Your donation right now will help us pay for what it takes to keep critical information coming to you at such a critical time. Today, we're also fundraising with our community partner, Giving Kitchen. So here's how it works. Your one donation right now will also cover the cost of a day's worth of utilities for a food service worker who's in crisis. Please give at wabe.org donate or call 678-553-9090. Thanks to you to Giving Kitchen and to Cisco Atlanta for their help as well. WABE.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Let's think back over the last two months. WABE has done a lot. We're now producing a podcast called Did You Wash Your Hands? And we created a national call-in show on Saturdays called America Amplified Life, Community, and COVID-19. Your donation right now will help us continue this important programming. So please give right now at WABE.org slash donate. Or 678-553-9090. And we need your donation because so much of our funding, 84% of it, comes from the Atlanta community. For many of our listeners, they've typically given $15 a month. But please give what you feel you can afford at wabe.org slash donate or with a call to 678-553-9090 because it only takes a couple of minutes to give. And if you're still on the fence about giving, please consider a one-time gift of $50 or $25 or $365. You know what you can afford. But the key right now is we need you. So please play a part at wabe.org slash donate or call 678-553-9090. Thank you. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.